Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We are from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're going to talk about exclusively repertory cinema today. The BFI, the British Film Institute, have put out a number of nationwide reissues or restorations of really significant films over the last few months. So we're going to talk about all of them since October, which just happened to be, yeah, some of our, at least my favourite films ever. Yeah, there's some real classics in there. Singing in the Rain, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got that shit. Ken Russell and Pete Townsend's Tommy. So sick. And then we also got Eyes Wide Shut, Sandy Kubrick, his last film. Got to see that in the cinema. The first time I'd ever seen it, crazy film. We'll get onto that in a bit. We also saw La Dolce Vita yes. as part of the Bellini centenary season that they're doing. Yeah, all of these have been screened around the country. We're also going to talk a little bit about the recently departed Peter Wallen mm. and his work with the BFI in publishing. Yeah. Let's do it. So yeah, for the last quarter of 2019, the BFI had a massive musicals season, Extendo. It was uh, most of their screens for most of the time. Yeah, any musical you can imagine, really, all the Hollywood classics. Yeah. My mum and sister were very happy to see like The Fiddler in the Roof in right, like, yeah, yeah, for screen sure. two or whatever. Go see <laughs> what's it, The Amazing Showman. You go see, uh, you know, you go see like 42nd Street on the town, these real brilliant old Hollywood films and they also had you know, a couple of Bollywood films mm, Yeah, I think they had a Japanese musical they had an amazing British musical what's that? Tommy <laughs> yeah yeah I guess this was all you know warm up for cats <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe it was lubing up the public with avant-garde films like Singing in the Rain <laughs> yeah communist propaganda yeah hell yeah well, I love Gene Kelly, right? I absolutely love Singing in the Rain. I think it must have been one of my earliest encounters with like film art. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. Seen it loads of times, you know? Every time I watch it, it's just totally spellbinding and always impressive. It's a fun story and it's always worth taking another look at. You watched it yesterday? Yeah, not. I mean, not for the first time. No. Because similarly, I feel like when I was growing up, it was on quite a lot, but... Maybe the first time that I've like really sat down and watched it in a critical way or mm. whatever. And yeah, there's just so much to enjoy about it, man. The story is just classic about like the transition from silent cinema to the talkies and like all the problems involved in that or like the possibilities involved in it. And, you know, the music is just outright. Like you told me that. Yeah, it's going back to the talkies, the start of musicals on film. And it's also, it was made because a lot of the songs in the MGM catalogue, mm. since they started making musicals, were running out of copyright or whatever. So they wanted to put like a compendium of some of their greatest hits in a film. And you would expect quite a threadbare story and certainly not as interesting a story or sort of... No, man, it's certainly really meta. Although the way that they do achieve incorporating these like rep tunes or whatever is in some points like mad. Like that montage sequence where it's like three songs happening at once. Oh, I love it. It's crazy. Yeah. Probably one of the main things I rem remembered of it from when I was a kid. Yeah, like three like very different songs and like visual compliments intercutting in just like a weird sequence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah, just as like art, it's crazy. As a story, as a narrative, like it's very entertaining. So, so much inherent humour in like what they're looking at and there's like a historical piece as well like looking back at like 30 years in the past or whatever at like quite a specific technological and social moment i mean there's so many things to celebrate in it yeah. i like how it goes from really expansive uses of editing cinematography mm. set design but then also donald o'connor just like doing vaudeville like tap dancing like backflips up the walls and like old like <laughs> shtick in the same film it's got it's so broad it's got like action sequences yeah beautiful design it's funny though what going back to the catalogue thing singing in the rain i mean very famous sequence obviously that song was originally used in like a noah's ark sequence or something in like a musical about the bible weird and then it's just used as an expression of joy for gene kelly very like set bound Mm. The Broadway melody ballet sequence is just crazy, I think, you know. Yeah. How long was it? 15 minutes? 
Yeah, 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 it's really long. And there's a very similar sequence in An American in Paris, which I also showed as part of the season, but I, I mean, I watched it at home. Again, it's like 15 minutes of like extremely mannered, self-contained storytelling within a story. And yeah, the way they achieve it in singing in a range is mental. Like In American in Paris, do they like go into a painting or something? Yeah, yeah, like a semi-painted background like melds into like, an, a, yeah. Right. But it's like a dream sequence as well. And it's like the end of the film. I love it in Singing in the Rain, you know, they got on to make sense of this like medieval romance film they have. Or it's not medieval. Mm. This like... Enlightenment. Yeah, like... right, sure. And then they just combine that to make it into a musical because Gene Hagen's voice is so bad. Yeah, Hilar- amazing yeah. comedy performance. One of the you know, yeah, 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 definitely, man. So yeah, then they just add this whole like Broadway element. Do- totally doesn't make sense, but it's mm. like fashioned in like a loving way and everyone's like yeah that's a great idea like time travel dream sequence or whatever (laughs) yeah it's actually crazy yeah it's always on in the cinema i think this was a restoration i didn't manage to see it at the bfi but it's always worth going to see in the cinema it's a great great time yeah i mean it's the sort of film where even if you were watching it like in an incidental way every time you glance up you'll be looking at something like truly iconic and legendary you know the tap dancing is fire like, mm. love it it's always fair weather is worth checking out if you like gene kelly doing elaborate tap dancing sequences maybe an underseen one wasn't as part of this thank you bfi for putting this on in screens nationwide because it is just the best yeah for sure all the films that we're going to be talking about they're still available for distribution for like smaller local cinemas yes so on the bfl website we we were like looking at like you know the parameters of the season or whatever and it's ba- you know it's still going on because you can book you know, it if you're a programmer at a local yeah. cinema to write to the VFI they've got some uh, good prints they also got The Umbrellas of Cherbourg a film I've been like less in love with but I've seen it a fair few times at this point it yeah. is just amazing though yeah I'd never seen it before mm-hmm. and again sadly I didn't get to see it in the cinema but I really enjoyed watching it tried to go see it in Edinburgh it was sold out really? yeah yeah that's great so you know I guess it's just like a sort of domestic drama that's like played out in an extremely romantic way. It's all sang. It's like an opera. Yeah, sort of like recit. Mm. There's not an actual song in the whole thing, really. No, there's like a motif and then it. I mean, that's the real meaning of melodrama, I guess. It's mm. like just totally underscored. Michel Legrand did the music and it's an amazing score. Really, really, really like emotive and very like sort of French <laughs> extremely french like chambery chamber pop yeah. it's a whole ass mood but they, i guess they were trying to capture sort of like natural speech and write music around it it's like one of those like yeah, youtube true. harmonization videos or in terms of like the sort of colloquialism of the the dialogue that was definitely one of the things that struck me about when i was watching it like the guy worked the like Gee. male lead gee works <laughs> in a like garage before he sent off to the Algerian that war. That is fantastic, isn't it? And the way they talk is like not that he sent off to the war, but that sequence of them all just like <laughs> hanging out. Yeah, when it's like, what are you saying tonight? You know, I'm gonna watch the football or whatever, and mm. it's all like I don't like the so theater. stylish the way they're like singing this shit. It's not a dancey one compared to singing in a very little dancing. Like, one of the best bits is when they're just like standing still, but on like a moving platform going yeah. down the alley yeah yeah that's really stunning and it has a really specific color palette like i guess like technicolor like yeah. that like 50s i mean this came out in i want to say 64 it's just primary colors though there's a lot less like shading and stuff like that it's... like singing in the rain came out like over a decade before mm-hmm. like that 52 or something but like they're very yeah exact primary colors is like yeah pastels as well mm-hmm. and, like very like as a French New Wave film, it's interesting because they shoot a lot of it like on the streets and stuff, but they make it look so... Dreamy, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Colour plays a big part. It's got uh, Catherine Deneuve. I think she was my kind of stumbling block with the film because I don't actually think she's that great. And she sort of falls in love with one man, then he goes to war, and then is proposed to by another man. And like, got quite a grand scale for like an 85-minute film. Mm. It takes place over a number of years. Yeah, it's in like chapters and it, yeah, it covers, as I said, covers like maybe five years or something. It's an interesting film. I mean, Demi did a number of these kind of films that are like sort of musicals. It's interesting to compare to Goddard's films like you watch Piero Le Fou, which yeah. has a couple of sequences that like threaten to be like a musical. Mm. Again, very similar colour pattern that came out like the exact same time. Unfam is Unfam is another film which I guess is almost like a diss track to Demi or whatever, mm. where it's like 
kind of looks the same, but a bit more subversive or well, yeah, I guess so, but it just has like it's like they're about to start singing or whatever it's like a anti-musical it's a bit annoying to watch mm. but it's a fun film it still looks nice but this is just like a totally pleasurable experience i can understand why they keep on putting it on in the cinemas it looks great on the big screen i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> the influence is still around something like la la, la, la land, land yeah. Yeah. charo story <laughs> but it looks better than all of this stuff i think because it's simple yeah i'd say just in terms of the narrative again like i feel like it has an interesting quite like mournful story that's yeah n- not a hollywood story really at all for sure deliberately so about sure. yeah yeah i mean it's but even in in la la land <laughs> they had to put the like sort of dream sequence where the like life plays out as if they'd stayed together or whatever. but this is just a very tight straightforward way to do it and with astonishing compositions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it really is, I guess, like a formal exercise, and like it's extremely impressive. All the films we're talking about in this musical sort of section are some of the best, like, colour film photography I can think of, up mm. there with classic Nicholas Ray films, Johnny Guitar, Bigger Than Life, or whatever. It's just so expressive and, like, designed in a way that contributes to the meaning. Mm. We'll get onto this topic yeah. later. I feel like, yeah, I, w- I watched Juliet of the Spirits like, after watching the Dolce Vita and that was Fellini's first colour film and, like, again, it seems to revel in the potential of colour for conveying, like, specific meanings and possibilities and, yeah, very, like, rich, like, transitional shit. Absolutely. From, like, the mid-20th century. Should we get onto the prime example? <laughs> yeah, definitely, because this is a really, yeah, like, a radical departure from well, when I first saw Tommy, I think it must have been on Love Film or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, I was just in awe. I don't think I'd seen any other Ken Russell films. It's just so unique. The whole thing of like how it came to be. I mean, I love The Who, as Sam knows. Yeah. <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of people know. I've just, you know, I've been really into Tommy recently. So when I saw the program drop, I was like, oh, I hope they got Tommy in there. Nationwide reissue. Really enjoyed seeing it in the cinema. Yeah, I was gutted not to come, but I was I was extremely hungover that day and to a debilitating extent. But it was mad. Yeah. It was like a subtitle screening, but I didn't know if it was a single screening, which they <laughs> yeah. had been doing for like Calamity Jane and loads. Actually, considering it's the BFI, which you'd consider sort of austere, but turning yeah. the BFI into the Prince Charles. <laughs> but then it actually was like a the sound must have been mad, dude. Yeah, because you just got Keith and John and Pete just playing the whole time, like drawing out the 40 minute Tommy album, which was the first sort of like. Yeah, was that like a few years before? 69. Yeah. And then there was like an opera? Well, they just toured it for a couple of years. Yeah. It's like a 40 minute album that they turned into like a. They gradually turned into like a 100 minute opera. Yeah. It's like an oratorio in album form because I think it's just all sung. Mm. Like The Umbrellas of Sherville. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what it is, though. It's like, like a mental concept album. Pete Townsend wrote that shit on an acoustic guitar and then made a sensational album with a few embellishments, but quite straightforward, just like him and Roger Daltrey singing, telling this story. Some people have since critiqued it for having some gaps in the story. Sometimes you don't know who's talking or like what's really going on, and you need a libretto like a lot of operas to really understand it. But luckily, over the next seven years, they fleshed it out. They took it on tour, Live at Leeds, the classic, and Live at Hull, which I actually prefer, the day before. Played that in full, and it was very, very popular as a touring act. So they had to put it on like the London Palladium. They brought on people like Sandy Denny, Elton John, uh, Ringo Starr, loads of people. And this was just continuously popular, you know? So by the time we get to Tommy the film, which was going to happen. I mean, this was the first rock opera, right? It was before, like, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Obviously, he had song cycles for ages and ages. And, like, bands doing that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know. But it's a very original thing. And it paid off. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly a huge cultural sensation. Like, we're not really interested in, like, box office numbers, but we were looking at, like, these and, like, 
obviously like in relation to its budget which was obviously big the film yeah. like because it has loads of mad sets and you know a star-studded cameo-filled cast um like it was obviously got people out to see it i think ken russell was probably part of the attraction as well as like the who i think he'd already won the oscar for best director after like woman in love he made the music lovers the devils like yeah sensational films yeah and he also had i haven't i really want to watch some of these because i'm intrigued by the prospect but he made these uh like bbc films with melvin bragg about like made like Marla and stuff yeah um loads of different composers yeah but yeah he established himself like through this period into making some of these crazy films man tommy was like his last successful cinematic film i think Mm. he like continued making films with like no budget and no public interest yeah this was my introduction to ken russell but yeah and i was just kind of blown away by the style you know it's very expressive Mm. For British cinema, especially. Yeah, for me, it was uh, The Devils with, like, the crazy Derek Jarman sets. And, again, Oliver Reed appears in both Tommy and um, The Devils. Just these, like, extremely... Just really interesting performances and characters and probably, the sets and everything. It's a whole other thing, You really, can probably but... see the descent over the, last, over the three years, the difference between The Devils and Tommy. Mm-hmm. Tommy is such loose. a crazy film. It is. I mean, as a um, friend of the show, Jack from Real Politics said, it's got like a star-studded cast of like legendary actors who can't sing, like absolutely singing their heart out. Well, like Jack Nicholson or... Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Oliver Reed. He's quite good. At least he holds it down. He sings the melody, unlike some people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anne-Margaret, Best Actress nominee at the Academy Awards for this film, mm. won the Golden Globe, but I mean says more about the Golden Globes than it does about the performance. You know. I guess she got it for the bean sequence. So <laughs> oh, the, right, oh so my they, God, yeah. As they were fleshing out and turning the 40-minute album into like a 100-minute film, mm. one thing they do do is incorporate a bit of the Who Sell Out, which is their first sort of like really concept-y, like cool record. Mm. But pretty Ken Russell-y, like grotesque sequence where Anne-Margaret gets like a lot of beans projectiled at her from out of a TV. Yeah, it's actually a mad sequence. The pinball competition at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Is that where it is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With uh, Elton John. Yeah. Again, like, uh, yeah. A lot of cameos like that. Tina Turner, Eric Clapton. That is the worst. I love the Mose Allison song on the record, but it just it's so bad in the film. That's the most, like, Ken Russell-y adaptive bit, I think, like, bringing this whole, like, pop art grotesquery into it. Yeah, bringing like a very vivid iconographical framework as well. And the scene takes place at like a mass for like disabled people, like at Lords or something like that. Mm. But there's no Jesus, it's just like statues of Marilyn Monroe and like the Andy Warhol print. And like you've got Eric Clapton playing like really bad guitar solo, which goes on for about four minutes. He looks like a uh, Mr. Burns when he's like on <laughs> drugs and people think he's an alien. <laughs> really he's the i think it was around this time that he was making speeches in favor of enoch powell at music festival makes sense doesn't it yeah i mean he's more dead than like adultery when he's being deaf dumb and blind (laughs) really really bad there are sequences like that but you know it is a film of sequences very much so and like set pieces governed by the music which is Yeah, awesome. you like the songs, you know. Yeah, oh, I don't know. It's too they do put a bit too much in the film, but some of the like musical motifs or like lyrical content, I just can't really stomach. Tommy, can you hear me? Yeah, that bit. See me. Oh yeah. Hear me. See me, feel me was the it's single. Like, yeah, that's insane. Ridiculous. It's like so. Oh. Yeah, I think. I mean. Look, it's an intriguing film. I I felt really alienated by it, though. And such a product of its time. Yes. Or, and the taste of the time, you know. I mean, Tommy had influenced, like, Jesus Christ Superstar, which had been made between the album and the film. So it kind of like, reflects that back. Maybe mm. some of the more whack elements and the more sort of stagey, like, musical mm. tropes that had really caught on and also become popular. I think Cats was around the same time as, like, the Tommy film or whatever. You know, and that shit is <laughs> terrible, you know. 
pales in comparison mm. to the purity of just like Pete Townsend open D tuning like you know guitar solo yeah get in I, both ears I feel like I had a very um a historical experience of it in that um I watched the film before listening to the album you know if so- someone you know if you feel like the I'm asking you well I guess I've listened I've listened to both now but just in terms of I, I guess I wanted to talk about like the narrative of the the album more than the music and how that relates to the film i think the fact that there is a narrative is what's like original about the album yeah for sure it's such a weird story and it can only be visually portrayed in like an extremely ostentatious ken russley way it's very garish outrageous i mean when we get to fellini I guess they're quite comparable filmmakers, you know, in a way. But they do just deal with, like, a lot of grotesquerie and just, like, when you see a lot of his later work that was around the same time, I imagine. They're quite reflexive. But, yeah, it is just unsubtle. You know, it's really out there. They couldn't make a film like it today. Every sequence looks completely different. There's no, like, cohesion that you have in, like, The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I mean... (sighs) It's really hard to talk about because there's just so much going on. If you wanted to, like, deconstruct it, like, it's so, like, packed full of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just as a film, though, it's outrageous. Mm. Mm. I don't know. For me, it was actually outrageous to the point of tedium. Yeah. It has some really uncomfortable moments. One, like, brazen bit of just, like, true homophobia that isn't, you know in any of the source material. Oh, Ken, yeah. Ken Russell put in. Yeah. Where the uh, paedophile uncle played by Keith Moon is reading the gay times and it's like defamation trial beat. It's peak. I don't know what to say. It's yeah. obvious time. But it's fascinating that this was so successful and it's so like awful in a lot of ways. Mm. But also so artistic and has some awesome rock music in the center of it. Roger Daltrey. Yeah, it's a crazy performance, man. As you referred to earlier, like, he has this, um, like, thousand yards there, like, <laughs> with, like, the open mouth and sure. just... I mean, when you see him performing at a Woodstock, like, seven years before with, like, the sunrise, that's pretty, like, pop transcendental or whatever. Mm. But then this, he just, I don't know, I guess he was so pro at doing it after so many years. And it lo- it's really weird, you know? But then there's also the other part of it where, <laughs> I guess, like, the turning point where oh, he, when he smashes the is mirror. free. <laughs> oh, I'm free. He's yeah. doing the cartwheels. And yeah, it's a crazy sequence. That man. scene is the best. When he's just got to dance, you know. It's, <laughs> cra- it's crazy. That was great in the cinema. That was the bit I wanted to stand up. I was yeah. Thinking, couldn't help but singing along, you know. But that song is awesome. Although the version they play in 1976 on the film is so much worse, less cool, less groovy, different rhythm. Yeah, it's such a strange, yeah, really, really weird, man. The fact that there are so many iterations of the same thing is, I guess, one of the most interesting things about it. It's all like just pretty simple, you know? Yeah. The fretboard turned into an album, then turned into, you know, an opera. Yeah. And then turned into a crazy, like, symbolist ken russell film right right you know it's such a 60s thing man it has all this iconography like there's a sequence there's like a sort of animation sequence where they're like drawing the parallel with like planes and well actually this is interesting because tommy the album is set after world war one but this is set after world Mm. war two they changed 1921 to 51 shit i know you care film grades listeners i know you care deeply but this is what I was asking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. And holiday camps are a big thing, which I think they were more of in the post World War Two. You know, like Butlins or whatever. Oh, holiday camps. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And they're like a big part of the setting of the film. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, they at, they make the planes look like crosses and stuff, and it's this kind of like pop art, also like kind of psychedelic definitely man and in the sequence we were discussing earlier the sort of cult of marilyn monroe where they're like treating it like lords and they're yeah yeah yeah. like kissing the feet of the statue for the like come on and like they draw on like poppy iconography yeah of course you know they do have some awesome sets though at the end when he's got all the pinballs like the giant pinballs 
It looks, including the somersaulting I'm free sequence, definite highlight. It looks like The Holy Mountain by Hodorowsky, which yeah. is on nationwide re-release with a restoration right now. Is that actually? Mm-hmm. Might see it tomorrow at the ICA. Oh, cool. Best in screen too, though. Psh. Yeah. Very wavy film. But Tommy is just, you know, people love it. It's awesome. It's got cool visuals. I prefer it to The Holy Mountain. Because it's got the who. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's I didn't. Sick, yeah. man. It's a. It's obviously an extremely rich film, but I just can't back it. I mean, it's deeply flawed. It's the most flawed film that we're talking about today. Yeah, I think that's undeniable. Yeah, but it maybe has the best source material, considering. Well, I haven't read the Arthur Schnitzler novella that um, Eyes Wide Shut is based on. <laughs> but you know, like Singing in the Rain is drawn from like the MGM song book. This is just like a cohesive work that is just getting fleshed out. But, you know, makes you want to listen to... I don't know, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. I think everyone should watch Tommy. If you want to watch something like Bonkers... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It would be the first thing that comes to mind now. It's one of the wildest films. And I'm sure Ken Russell's films got more and more wild. But, like, the grandeur... I just think it's sick. BFI musical season, pretty cool, and they made really good choices. Yeah, I mean, it was really comprehensive. It's dope. Tommy picked up a nice little 20 grand <laughs> yeah. at the nationwide box office. Yeah. I had a really good time watching it in the cinema. Pretty packed out screening. I think maybe I would have enjoyed it more in the cinema. Yeah, definitely. But We got the quintophonic sound. <laughs> the Who were always at the forefront of these like developments, like the Marshall stack. Is that right? Yeah. Always trying to make it more loud. And yeah, up to eleven. Yeah, I think the thing is though, compared to like Gene Kelly, who's like going so hard, Donald O'Connor, even very young Debbie Reynolds. I think she's very young in the film. I think she's like seventeen, and like they're all going crazy dancing. Like the camera and the scoring in Umbrellas of Sherborg is like going crazy, like mm. bursting with like ideas and like passion. But Tommy like. The Who have been doing this shit for like seven years at this point. Like their heart is not in it. There's so much more extraneous shit. I only really liked The Who for a few years, you know. They'd already made like Quadrophenia at this point, the album. They were just kind of shit. They'd moved yeah. on, you know. Yeah. And they're just doing Tommy again with all these like funky solos and like vamps. I'd much rather listen to just like the four of them playing that shit live at Leeds. Yeah. Because Tommy is cool, you know. I'm down to hear the story again. It's a classic story. The deaf, dumb and blind <laughs> I mean... kid liberated by pinball. You know. It's better than the Hulk. <laughs> better than what? Oh, you got your billionaire buying <laughs> buying his suit. Yeah, we love that. It's true. I mean, it's an extremely original story. And it's, you can be a victim of abuse. You can be disabled, but you can still make a difference to the world. You've got something special within you. You're a superhero. You can free yourself. Mm. The end of the film, though, is... Yeah, they hate it. Sort of negates that Yeah, it turns out Tommy's that a message. fascist. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I mean... <laughs> he makes his cult go, like, deaf, dumb and blind. Yeah. And, like, they can't smoke or drink or anything like that. And then all the kids are like... There's a revolt, ah, yeah. Fuck you. And that's what we learn, you know? Ah, love mm, it. Yeah, I'd... come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just in terms of the music, so quickly then. Yeah, there are some obviously really banging parts. You know, yeah, parts that bang. What are your highlights, but, please? Mm, okay, this is the problem. They're not. They can't be categorized as songs, right? It's like fills or like stuff. parts. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. There are like little bits that I'm and like, really oh cool. yeah, but then it breaks into like a really dead verse. That is really good in the cinema as well, I think, when you've just got the bass and the drums just like kicking, like mm. really loud, just like taking you through, even when there's just these long shots with like dozens of extras and like really elaborate, like horrible looking production design, but at least you've got Keith Moon and his dying days, like going left, right, left, right, yeah. with one hand on the single. Tommy mm. is awesome. I hope that they put it back in the cinemas soon, or I might have to make a trip to a town to go to a screening. Village Hall. Yeah. And the Who, the Who tribute band. No. Tommy O'Reilly. 
<laughs> Nej. <laughs> You're still listening to Film Grays. So yeah, mu musicals. <laughs> nice season. Didn't get to it too much, but it's a nice thing to program. Yeah, for sure, man. And I think for a lot of people, it's good to see these in the cinema and, you know, have an opportunity to see them in the cinema. And it's nice that they're being distributed widely. Absolutely. And there's clearly a mechanism in place for them to be distributed independently, you know, or in collaboration with the BFI, which is cool. In glorious Technicolor, these films should be seen on the big screen. Yeah, for sure. Eyes Wide Shut must have been fucking cool to see on the big screen. I feel like everyone I know saw it recently. I just watched it on a DVD. It was the 20th anniversary? Yeah, it came Yeah, it came out in 99, I guess. Yeah. Um, just after Kubrick died. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. And mysterious it, it, circumstances. It started with a you know, bit of a panjaric, you know, yeah. just like mini documentary about, you know, with his nearest and dearest. Yeah. Uh, about Eyes Wide Shut? About, about the production of it, yeah. But I guess... Was the it his longest, daughter? Was the longest it? continual shoot of all time is like 430 days or something. Wow, that's crazy. When we went to the Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum that we spoke about ages ago. I, On our I, first ever episode. Episode right? zero. Yeah. Well, it's clearly a seminal experience. <laughs> no, but... Uh, the, the seed. Yeah. I hadn't seen Eyes Wide Shut at the time. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's always had like... You know, it's always been like a bit beguiling, you know, what it's about or whatever. And, you know, it has these like, you know, like cult elements. Or Only whatever. in 2019 did we find out what it's really about, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is. Sure. A, it's a mysterious yeah, film. I mean, sure. it's a mystery film, even though like nothing really goes on. It's just about one man. Oh, I, yeah, it's, to, about it's like season four you know? of Curb, you know. It's like <laughs> trying to, he's, try, he's really desperately trying to cheat on his wife and no one's going to. Yeah, wow. That's so true. Um, yeah, the season four, the one where he has like that anniversary gift. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember. Oh, it's the one where he's doing the producers. So it is. Yeah, I think that is season. Curve got mighty bad recently. Mm. Oh yeah, I haven't seen any of the new ones yet. But anyway, yeah, Tom Cruise plays a doctor, as we are constantly reminded of. Yeah. Um, who's got a pretty comfortable life. Yeah, married to Nicole Kidman, both in real life and on the screen, mm. and they live in a nice like Upper West Side, Upper East Side, I think. I don't know whatever. Yeah, like very bougie, yeah. you know. With terrible art on the walls. Mm. All of the art was painted by Christiana Kubrick. They have a kid sort of marriage story style, like structuring absence or whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Do they even have a kid? Like, I feel like they do, but I can't... Maybe they don't. I don't know. I don't know if they have... No, they do, yeah, they, they have, like, a babysitter or whatever. But, like, it's all about their, like, inner life, I guess. It's all about his inner life. And the way his inner life, yeah. He's driven mad because his wife... They, they smoke a zoot and then they have this mad conversation. Yeah, she just like drives him crazy because she tells him about like a sexual fantasy, about like a mm. naval officer. And then he just can't handle it. So he goes out into the night, goes to like a, and then he gets invited by one of his clients, uh, played by Sidney Pollack, to, uh, well, he doesn't read. No, he's not invited. The guy like mentions it. He's like, oh, I've got to go and play at this thing. Oh, it's his friend who's a pianist. And he's like intrigued by the mystery of it. Yeah. It doesn't actually immediately relate to his, like, sexual imperatives or whatever, <laughs> mm. right? But then it very quickly becomes about that, I guess. It's there in every scene, though. Every scene is, like, a challenge to him or whatever, to mm. his masculinity or whatever. It's a fascinating film, you know. I, yeah. I think, you know, for the reappraisal, it's been, you know... I mean, it was a packed house. Yeah. Obviously at the BFI. I think it was the movie... Yeah, I think it was the movie film of the week. So... Free ticket. We had a free ticket. It was on the cover but, of Sight and Sound. I mean, it was a big, big event, you know? Mm. And as you said, it has added pertinence. It's subject matter relating to, you know, the sex cults of the, you know, Rich oligarchy. <laughs> it's obviously extremely germane to the present. For sure. And maybe to all time. Who's oh, to say? Yeah. I don't go to any of these parties. I don't know. But... It was a film that was kind of maligned at the time. A lot of people didn't like it. Some people think it's unfinished. The music is certainly a bit, like, weird. Oh, but yeah. But some of it is genius. Very recurrent sort of motif style. Mm. Mm. Very cool, actually. I really appreciated the music. And I think, you know, it's really important, I guess, to think about it not only as, like, an intriguing film that relates to politics mm. or society but also as you know like an ode to a film with like 
as a production. It was a film he'd been trying to make for years. A lot of people say like, oh, the New York looks really artificial because it was all filmed in London and all like at the Shepperton Studios and stuff like that. But I think it's deliberately like artificial, weird, very mysterious, you know, things like the terrible art on the wall, some of the costumes and just some of the, the lighting. Yeah, it's really impressive. Natural lighting, like balls lit by fairy light. All that good just stuff. Just by fairy light. Oh, yeah, it's true, isn't it? Because it's a Christmas um, film. Just in terms of its like constructedness as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things in that exhibition um, was a like two meter, three meter stretch of photographs stuck together of a commercial road in London mm-hmm. uh, to replicate like Manhattan. Oh, so it was You're right, yeah. But they didn't even use that in the end. <laughs> like, but it was just about it. Just demonstrates like the meticulousness or the levels. Yeah, the levels is <laughs> mad. Yeah. Crazy film. Yeah, it's a straightforward film. Doesn't take place over a great amount of time, but it's long. Yeah, it really is. It's like three hours. I'm glad the first time I got to see it was in the cinema because it is quite an immersive experience. It's all about the doctor's psychology, his desires, like writ his large, like will played out in front of his eyes or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, really immersive. In the cinema. It is. It is like deeply ironic and hilarious, you know, as well as being. Oh, yeah, because he's a ridiculous character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Played beautifully by Tom Cruise. Great performance. I think, you know, even though this film doesn't have that many scenes, I guess the reason it had such a continuous shoot, Kubrick famously just shot the same scene, like, a hundred times over or whatever, really getting to the heart of the characters, or in this, like, really getting to the heart of the vacuum. Mm. It's fascinating, you know? Yeah. And I guess a lot, you know, when I watched it recently, it felt very different to when I watched it the time previously, which was about eight years before or something like that and it'll probably always be the case you know i mean it obviously picks up new levels of meaning Mm. especially because it's about society and it's meant to be shining a light or whatever for sure as other lights are shone (laughs) you know it becomes more pertinent or meaningful and it's a vision of sort of urban hell and moral decay as is the other big auteurist reissue from the bfi oh, we've had recently just, yeah haha a film i don't like as much as eyes wide shut but i did go to see for free mm. federico fellini's la dolce vita yeah again another film that i saw for the first time at the bfi mm-hmm. and yeah again like a real odyssey of a film much like eyes wide shut different span of time a different sense of time in it it's a really sprawling story. Like, it's, you know, it's not, it's not like decay in a microcosm. It's like... Episodes. Yeah, like playing out and... Yeah, the stories that are told in the film are really all really different, but I guess they're all kind of saying the same thing over and over again about how, like, decrepit the modern world slash, like, Rome in the 60s is. Yeah. And how culture is just uh, fucking depressing. Yeah, really like a narrative that's responding to the real world through, like interesting filmic means it's episodic nature like means that it can do lots of different things as well yeah it has a really interesting structure i think that is i think it's talked about a lot about the film and it's also like one of the more fascinating things you know it's seven episodes and has a kind of elliptical structure it opens with a a new statue of jesus like flying through rome carried on a couple of helicopters amazing sequence yeah and it ends with like this weird like fish being discovered on the beach and between those, you have loads of episodes of this sort of, where he's becoming a writer, but he's like a journalist. Like What's his name? PR he's guy. like a mainstay of... On Marcello Mastroianni. Yeah. He also plays the like Fellini alter ego in Eight and a Half. Mm. Really good performance. Mm. One of many awful, awful people in the world of this film. Yeah. I guess going into it, I didn't know exactly how ironic its title was. Right, sure. I mean, it make, it becomes clear, like, pretty fucking quickly, but... Um, <laughs> God, man, like... <laughs> oh, it's a really impressive film, actually. Mm, mm. Sensational in, you know, the most basic way, like, extremely stylish, but also very... Substantial. You know, substantial. <laughs> yeah, like, it's really responding. Yeah. It's got... A wealth of like really memorable images. There's like the sort of miracle sequence. There's the weird fish thing, as I said. Again, just like relating to, as you said, Rome in the sixties. Yeah, you got and the like Italian life in the twentieth century more generally. Yeah, and Italian 
art and art movements in the 20th century as well. For sure. I mean, much like a history lessons by Strobe, yeah, you know, there are mm. modern characters walking around like ancient yeah, yeah. settings. Like there's one really good sequence to take place at like the Baths of Caracalla. Mm. And they are just, you know, it's Rome. Yeah, they're wa- walking like beyond the <laughs> gate or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Unbridled interaction with the space and its mythology. Yeah. A lot of it also takes place in the sort of uh, newer parts of Rome. A lot of high rises, yeah, sort of yeah, like yeah. more modernist or I guess fascist Yeah. Uh, building developments or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're juxtaposed in quite an interesting way. And also sort of like, I mean, most of this film takes place at parties. Or just in like sort of swanky apartments. The main character is sort of alienated from like all the people around him, like his best mate, who, you know. He's a journalist. I guess it's important as a way of like conditioning his experience or like separating him. He's a journalist who's trying to transition into like becoming like a thoughtful writer. <laughs> yeah. But he also he's accused is... of writing for like right wing publications at one point. Mm. But, he's, but he, he just yearns did, to like... <laughs> he just yearns to fulfil his soul and he can't do it through like these he okay. <laughs> the main character constantly is like battling with his wife. I think this film is pretty misogynist, and you know the Absolutely. portrait of his wife as just like you know she's just like at home while he's just like out like yeah, trying to cheat on her or you cheating know, on her. It's like. in black and white, but you can see the yellow wallpaper. Like <laughs> yeah, she's just like at, yeah, she's freaking out like always on the phone like about to kill herself or whatever, and he's like oh, I don't care. Why must I choose between a mother figure and like these whores or whatever you know like yeah it's true it's really really bad and both ideologically and in terms of like boundaries and like physical violence and stuff yeah. like that. it's a really um but you know it is an artifact of its time and in the same way it responds to italian history and you know it res- responds to italian life so yeah i don't know by by for sure, that, I mean, for this, sure. this uh, element of it as a film but it's more misogynist more like, than most italian films i've seen and that's saying something you know, I don't know yeah i mean i don't think that's fellini's view of women i mean everyone gets it pretty bad in this film yes yeah. but i mean it's it's a perspectival thing right mm. we're seeing it like so the most famous thing about this film is like the fountain sequence with mm. anita ekberg like chapter yeah. two of the film where he's got a like interview this uh like continental film star like from sweden or yeah who's like starring in a film and she arrives with her husband anyway she's really really stupid the character she plays but a lot of these films have this like really really childish character like mm. super innocent i don't feel like that's a gender thing as much as a no it's not but it just uh, plays out like weirdly cultural. plays out weirdly in this like sort of sexualized like film celebrity character who just is... yeah definitely but it's because the main character is meant to be a piece of shit as well for sure of course anyway it's weird that that's the most famous thing about the film because that is like really the nicest part of... well exactly like it's imagined romantically that like iconography yeah of like trophy the trophy fountain. Fountain, like being in the trophy fountain like but in the context of the story it's just another form of like deviance or, or like yeah transgression or, <laughs> yeah yeah a blasphemy or whatever you know and yeah it's a really deep film it's a nasty film definitely if you watch it it's probably not the film that you would expect going off like the famous iconography from the film this is what i meant i suppose by yeah. saying that i was you know i quickly adjusted to what, what it was saying but like it wasn't what i was expecting when i went into it really an extremely interesting and critical film Mm. Weird for the 60th anniversary reappraisal as a cultural document. I mean, it's very influential, like, yeah. iconic. Oh, we're about to go on to it. It's the yeah. most famous Fellini film by quite some margin, far more than Eight and a Half or La Strada even. Mm. And that is not for, like, any of the things that, like, Fellini is famous for, which is kind of mad. But it's just, like, a crucial for sort sure. of, like, pop cultural image. Bob Dylan sang about it and stuff like that as just a piece of like cultural detritus. Still, to watch in the cinema, pretty nasty, depressing three-hour film with no likable characters and all just different shades of like hate. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I don't think that's Fellini being. I think he's just reflecting rather than sure. championing or idealizing a, or anything. It's a portrayal of that sort of like celebrity 
paparazzi culture. Yeah, I mean, you told you told me that it, it invented the concept of the paparazzi. Well, the character is called paparazzo, or yeah. the, like young. And that's the etymology the of paparazzi. Yeah, that's where it comes from. That's that says it all. Like, just what does the image of a paparazzi conjure feet? Obviously, like parasitic. Something like Nightcrawler is very influenced by this. Film. For sure, for sure. And there's probably loads of examples. Yeah. La Dolce Vita, I hadn't seen it in like half of my life or something like that. And I remember not really liking it when I first watched it. But I mean, it's a literary impressive ass film. I think that's one of the key things about it, man. That, you know, it's like a book. Yeah. It's a text. Go see it at your local. still listening to film grace and we're gonna round off the episode with just a little tribute to a very influential writer and filmmaker mm. peter woolen if i ever got a pet sheep i'd also call it peter woolen <laughs> he wrote signs of meaning in the cinema in 1969 the same year as peter townsend wrote tommy that's crazy both very original works within their form established a new form the rock opera and the sort of non-academic film theory publishing and he died over christmas Big loss. I really enjoyed reading him. He was one of the first sort of film theorists I ever read. Sam, you read Signs of Meaning in the cinema recently. The OG copy, you want to talk about it? Basically changed the game. Mm -hmm. Extremely influential. It came out as part of a BFI series of books from their education department. Yeah, Cinema One. Very important text. Signs and Meaning has like three sections. So the first one is a sort of exegesis of Eisenstein's mm -hmm. career... How, how it related to like different art forms, different like artistic movements in the 20s in Russia. He was working in the theatre like, at the same time yeah, as exactly. like Brecht and stuff. He was mostly interested in montage and how you can make a meaning out of the collision between two shots. Mm. Eisenstein is someone who wrote extensively, he wrote way more than he made films mm. about like film theory. And he was one of the first like film theorists turned filmmakers like Peter Wallen. Yeah, and for Peter Wallen, like it's so central, I think that, collision of theory and praxis where like he was a filmmaker he made films with um his laura mulvey also a film critic influential film very critic influential wife. film theorist the male gaze etc yeah and they made experimental films that sought to demonstrate their understanding of like the possibilities of film and montage the crystal gazing what was on we watched uh riddles of riddles of the sphinx yeah Interesting shit, pretty alienating to be honest. I don't really like experimental film, but the whole point is, I guess it's sort of like Stropier, like stuff that's like rigorous and yeah. formal and demonstrative, like yeah, exploring the juncture between sound and image and these yeah. kind of things. Setting. And pff, Signs of Meaning really obviously emerges from this these preoccupations. Mm -hmm. So the first chapter's about Eisenstein, the second one's about like auteur theory, how that comes out of like Saris. Truffaut, like French criticism, and then the third bit's about like semiology or semiotics more broadly. He explores the auteur theory in a really cool way, I think, as well as talking about the critical sort of like canon that was being formed at that time. But he, in the same way that he talks about Eisenstein, he compares and contrasts John Ford, Howard Hawks, and Bud Bettiker, mm. and mostly their westerns, to demonstrate how the auteur theory sort of emerges and how themes work as well as talking about the sort of repertory history of like these films being screened to french critics after like american films being banned for years and then mm. cinema clubs being formed it's brilliant i mean i guess you haven't seen a lot of the films being discussed no but i understand what he's <laughs> sure how he's analyzing them i guess he understands like a way into like understanding certain films especially hollywood films made by like artists with a capital a like john mm. ford or Howard Hawks, who wasn't seen as an artist, really. And you only understand his artistry through, like, watching a bunch of his films and seeing how, like, the theme emerges yeah. and what he's interested in. This, like, camaraderie and, like, danger yeah. and, like, craziness. Yeah. Versus... Uh, yeah, I think the verse, the idea of the verses is really... <laughs> well, were you going to jump to a different filmmaker or, I was like, gonna say, within like, the same Bettica's thing? Bettica's just uh, radical individualism or whatever. Just, like, one hero, like doesn't fit in with anyone else like everyone else is a disturbance to their whole thing or ford who situates all his stories explicitly within like american history and like myth yeah 
it's all true. One of the things, though, about the way Willen presents this is just its oppositional nature. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, that outsider, the townspeople, like, you know, and like the way that these, like, calls them like antinomies or like, you know, that it's just like the standard, like, oppositional the structure of, yeah, and like how these, like, I guess ideological battles or like symbolic tensions or like clashing conventions like come together that's like and then this the pattern that emerges like through identifying these it's all like really rigorous and i guess when we like generally and diffusely talk about like richness it's implicit like but they're also themes that artists revisit over a number of films and there are means of like categorization and differentiation between their works which is interesting and it's using like the baitest examples like westerns that like everyone had seen and were on tv all the time and demonstrating how the artists behind them even though people didn't care who howard hawks was you know he was like not like a noble artist you know he just made like entertaining films and the only film he was celebrated for sergeant york was like one of his least like typical films or whatever the auto theory is very easy to understand i guess and like very influential in terms of how people write about and understand cinema it just encourages evaluation and re-evaluation for sure the third chapter is a sort of survey of semiology from socials linguistic theory lectures in the 1910s through you know i would say that as far as such surveys go it is far less obtuse (laughs) or you know muddling than others i've read like Mm -hmm. it's actually pretty comprehensive but you know it demonstrates also that like it was written in the 60s and it's preoccupied with questions of structuralism how we approach film as an art and stuff we take for granted now but so seminal yeah and i'd also say that as a piece of writing it's excellent he's a great writer as a historian i'd say it's commendable and you know for all his like structuralism and like the rigorousness, like there's also that like human, you know. For it's sure, like I mean, good he, prose, you know. He takes on Bazan. In his third <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of digs and takedowns in it. Yeah, for sure, but he's also influenced by it, you know. And it's the, it's the real cinephile theory, you know. So our next episode, like Tommy, we're getting through all the ones we know you've been waiting for. Next episode is on Bellatar's Satan Tango. Yeah, God, a forthcoming cinematic re-release the best film ever we both read the novel sam's gonna watch the film yes entirety yeah i saw it in the cinema recently it's gonna be great to talk about yeah i can't wait thanks very much listeners yeah thanks for listening and if you like film grades please subscribe and give us a like or whatever and you can find us on twitter and on letterboxd where we log all the films we discuss here Ah!